0: Hi everyone, I'm Lachie Mansell and you've downloaded the Checkered Flag chat podcast where our guest for this episode is Matt Fraid. You'll recognise Matt as the CEO of the Australian Racing Group, ARG, which manages a portfolio of motorsport categories and events including the TCR Australia Series. Prior to that, Matt spent time in a couple of different roles at supercars, but his extensive CV also stretches into the wider automotive industry, including a stint as managing director of Volvo Cars Australia. In our chat, Matt talked about his career history and gave us his thoughts on the current state of play in the Aussie motorsport landscape. So, let's launch into it, our chequered flag chat with Matt Braid. So, great to have Matt Brain along for this episode of Check and Flag Chat. And Matt's done a lot within the motorsport industry, but before we talk about the motorsport stuff, we actually have to go back a bit further to when Matt started off working in the automotive industry. And A lot of people who are motorsport fans would probably recognise Matt as being someone who was involved with Volvo. But before then, if we go back a bit further, you were actually working as a regional area manager at Holden, weren't you, in the early 2000s?
1: Yeah, that, that seems like a long time ago now, but yes, it's true. True, Lachlan, you got me there, you've done the research. Um, but I got into the automotive game probably about 1995, I think it was. Um, started out with uh, actually VW, you know, which was formerly or used to be Inchcape before it became VW Australia. And then did a stint overseas in uh, the United Arab Emirates for a couple of years, working on working for a big dealer group importer there, and actually came back to Australia and kicked off my time with Holden, which uh, I was a regional manager there in New South Wales. And I'd like to say probably the heyday of Holden, you know, which is it's very sad to see what's become of the brand now. But certainly in those times, we were having having a lot of fun, making some great cars, selling lots of cars, and it was a really good it was a really good time in my career and a good time at Holden. I think back then.
0: So was the automotive industry something that you had always been interested in and wanted to be involved in?
1: Yeah, it's it's true. I, I grew up and I've always been a, a car head, you know, from, from early days and uh, certainly looked to do to get involved in the automotive industry. And I actually started doing uh, mechanical engineering with a view to becoming you know, more heading into the, or trying to get into the automotive industry on the engineering side. But uh, found that wasn't to my liking and eventually sort of... Uh, bummed around a bit and tried a few different things and ended up, um, you know, the, the calling of the car industry brought me back. And I thought, you know, it's something I've always been passionate about. So uh, I'd like to think I'm one of those people who if you can't get out of the bed in the morning, look forward to work, I, I can't do it. So for me, finding a, finding a place in the industry that I loved and really really excited about was great. So I was able to get into the, into the car industry and go from there.
0: So that time that you spent at Holden as the regional area manager, As you said, it was probably the glory days of Holden. I think back then it was around the time of the VT and the VX model Commodores, which were the best-selling cars in Australia. There was lots of success on track at that stage as well. I think, you know, that era is synonymous with Mark Skate's domination of the V8 supercar racing at that stage. I mean, how was it from your perspective working for Holden at that particular time?
1: Yeah, as I touched on before, it was a fantastic time, uh, a really, really great group of people. So the, the team that I worked with in New South Wales, also to a larger extent, the the team also at head office. It was a really a really good crew. Um, it achieved a lot. And I think as, as a really tight unit, everyone was galvanised to achieve good results for the brand uh, on all levels. And that was largely down, I think, to, you know, from the top down, you had Peter Hanenberger, who was the, the uh, managing director at the time of Holden. And he was a fantastic... I, fantastic gentleman, actually, and, and a, a really good leader, set up really good culture for the, for the business and threw some targets out there uh, that were, at the time, seemed to be quite, quite a challenge. And he sort of shook up the, I don't know a better term, I guess, the Australian, sort of a bit, you know, bit laziness, because, I mean, Holden was very big and a bit of a cumbersome bureaucratic business at that stage, albeit you know, successful, but he certainly challenged and, and moved it a bit quicker, moved it a bit higher than what it otherwise would have done. So that was a great time where we had good product, had good people in place, the marketing was great, the dealer network was very passionate, and as you say, it was a time of you know, the, the, the awesome Commodores, you know, the Monaro was just being launched at the stage as well, uh, and I think market share was like 22, 23%, which was, was massive back then, and uh, and we were, we were a sales leader in many of our markets, which was great, so that, it was very competitive, and very exciting, and uh, a really great period, and to me it sums it up i remember going to a big uh, dealer conference we had where peter Hannenberger announced that he was actually retiring and going back to europe and we actually had dealers in the room in tears and i think that just summed up how passionate everybody was about what it, what what the brand was at that stage the success everyone had and obviously peter's uh, peter's role in it as well
0: so given how uh, i suppose heavily and closely aligned you were to holden for those few years when the announcement came out early this year and i mean obviously the writing had been on the wall for a while but of holden's demise as a brand in australia how did you feel about that yeah
1: i think yeah as an australian a proud australian obviously just seeing the seeing the Holden brand um you know being forced out of the market and, and being forced to close is, is sad but also recalling my time there and how good it was uh in the period that myself and others worked there in the heydays uh that was you know it was even more so, it had created create more impact to me. And I still keep in contact with a lot of my colleagues from that time and we did reminisce about um, you know, the good times, but also all of us were very sad and, and you know, felt a bit of pain that this, this great brand that we'd, and company that we would worked for was now no longer gonna be. Uh, and as you say, the writing was on the wall. I think there was certainly some issues there, but you know, nonetheless, when, uh, when the announcement finally came out, it is, does leave you with some mixed feelings.
0: So, from the uh, the very large and successful brand that was Holden in 2003, you exited Holden and you moved on to a brand that was much more of a niche player in the Australian automotive landscape. Volvo, it was the regional business manager in 2003 and uh, when we look at your time at Volvo you worked in a variety of different roles so you were the regional business manager for a while you moved up to the marketing director role sales director for a couple of years and then ultimately to the managing director role in 2011 so obviously you were climbing up the corporate ladder but it does seem that by working in some different roles across the company you were getting a feel how all of the different departments functioned. And I can only imagine that by the time you finally made it to MD, all of the knowledge that you had gained on the way up would have been very valuable.
1: Yeah, exactly. And look, I, Volvo is a great company to work for, and it still is, and it's a great brand, equally with some with some fantastic people involved in it too. And I, I started out, effectively changed from Holden across to Volvo in a very similar role to, to what I was doing before. Uh, but I had some fantastic mentors at Volvo and it was, uh, it was very forward-thinking as an organisation, uh, lots of opportunity. And yeah, I was able to progress relatively quickly through there and did some great, great roles and some great fun as well. But I, I got some fantastic guidance from, from some, good, um, some, some good leaders there, you know, good predecessors that I had in the various roles and certainly the MD roles as well. So uh, I was ambitious myself. At the time, being, being quite young and wanting to move, move through the organisation, but equally I had some good mentors that were encouraging me and challenging me to do that as well. So it was one of those things where if you show the drive and you want to do it, but actually getting that assistance and guidance as well and the opportunity um, to move to move through the organisation was, was really positive. And in many of, those, many of those moves I made, I really wasn't uh, highly experienced enough in those roles, but was given the challenge and as... Uh, a former CEO said, I'm, I'm giving you the runway to take off. So it's up to you. And, um, you know, I, I to this day, I'm very grateful that uh, I was given the opportunity to, to have a crack at some of those positions in the company, despite my experience and age.
0: Making it all the way up to managing director, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, being the managing director for a car manufacturer uh, in a particular company or a particular region. Was that something that you had always aspired to achieve and how did it make you feel once you actually reached that goal?
1: Yeah, it it was, I was fairly ambitious uh, and I was fairly young at that stage too. And I, I did, after having a couple of years in Volvo, understand the landscape and the business, I was very excited about what, where my career path could go with that organisation. I did, I did see myself staying with that, that company for a long time. I was very passionate about the business and also liked the opportunities that it presented. So, yeah, I think once I, um, once I progressed to the marketing director role, at Volvo, I was there for a bit of a period of time. Obviously, at that stage, you're in the senior executive level position, not only in the Australian market, but you recognise around the world, the Volvo world, in those roles as well, and it became almost an opportunity going, well, yeah. I, I, could see, I could see the opportunity to potentially be Managing Director one day I, once I got into that role. So yes, that did, did spur me on to, to go for it. And uh, I was really, really pleased to be, able to, um, to be able to take on that MD role and be awarded the MD role. I had to go through, obviously, a substantial process. Uh, I was very young at the time. I think at that stage, I was actually the youngest uh, MD appointed in Volvo um, through the other markets. And likewise, that was a bit of a risk for them as well because um, I had the experience, uh, as you touched on, going through the various departments. But uh, yeah, some, some quarters of the business thought that I might be a little bit young for the role. Uh, but equally, the, the, my predecessor who backed me uh, and very, was very supportive of me, Alan Dessels, he was fantastic, uh, both as a mentor and a, and, a, and a friend, and he said, look, yeah, I think you're ready. And with his support and other support of, of some senior executives in Sweden who had known me in the other roles... They saw me as being, thankfully, a natural progression to that role and natural natural promotion, which was something at that stage I really did want the role. I I loved the business, and I could see how I could further contribute to it, which was really exciting. Uh, And also to, even it's rarer now, but even back then it was very rare to get a a, an Australian citizen, an Australian person, running a an international uh national sales company for international brands yeah many of my counterparts in other luxury brands have been in were executives that were brought in for you know, from germany or europe or america so to actually bmd and be you know, local born and born and bred aussie running the australian business was was equally very attractive to me and i was very proud of that
0: yeah definitely some aussie pride there for sure and uh, the other thing as well is if you think back to that era from 2011 through to 2014. Volvo was churning out some fantastic cars at that stage as well. And uh, at that stage, my housemate, I was living in Melbourne at the time, and my housemate was Dave Stilwell, who we've had as a guest on this podcast uh, previously. And uh, Dave's family in the Stilwell Motor Group, obviously they had quite a strong presence in terms of owning some Volvo dealerships. So I remember in, I think it would have been 2012 or 2013, when the Volvo V40 came out, I actually had the, the opportunity to test drive one of those very early Volvo V40s when they were first launched. And I remember getting in the driver's seat and thinking volvos aren't supposed to be fun and sexy and exciting they're supposed to be boxy and boring and and you know cars that people who are not very good at driving tend to buy but uh certainly that uh, that reputation was well and truly smashed by some of the volvo offerings that were coming out in that period
1: yeah you're right and uh, look that was a great time product wise i think certainly everyone would admit that uh Volvo's always been known for being safe cars and obviously generally very reliable cars too and dependable cars, but they weren't the sexiest things to drive from a from a look and a performance point of view. That did change dramatically in the 2000s. You know, the product was really, really good uh, and getting a lot, lot better. And in many cases, we, you know, our cars were as good as if not better in some of the um, product areas than many of our direct German competitors, as an example. But as you point out, the Australian psyche is very much the, the Volvo reputation was so strong being, you know, around sort of safety conservative all the drivers that we, we really struggled to crack through that from a marketing point of view. And we actually used to say, when we described it to the head office, you know, it was a case of uh, there was no longer a problem with the metal in Australia. There's a problem with the mental because, you yeah, know, the, the cars were not good enough to compete, but that mental barrier for consumers on the brand was still there. And, and Australia was, and probably to a degree is, the last market the volvo is in there still has that that uh, legacy reputation for the brand which most other markets have progressed from and i think volvo certainly australia has, has improved that dramatically as well
0: and at that stage as well a big part of smashing some of those form of perceptions was the rise to prominence of the polestar brand and this segues into our motorsport chat because volvo would enter the supercars championship in 2014 with gary rogers motorsport and uh, Scott McLaughlin certainly ensured that they burst onto the scene at Adelaide that year with his exciting battle with, with Jamie Wincup that we all remember from uh, from the the Adelaide race that year. Was it that entry into Supercars that enabled you to build connections within the Supercars organisation, or was Supercars something that you'd already been paying attention to at that stage?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Lachlan. I think I I'd done some. Uh... Motorsport stuff in my you know, in my earlier career, more of yeah, helping out on the amateur level with some teams and so forth, largely in the super touring era back then. But I'd always sort of followed supercars and been a general motorsport fan. Um, so while I was a Volvo, I really wasn't watching supercars too closely as a you know, week in, week out fan. But certainly get my honour in that period. And uh, when we when we the whole idea of of uh, the supercar program was actually to really you know, what Big bang could we make to really shatter the brand image of our Volvo and and really trying to get uh, an awareness on awareness, certainly, about the performance of our cars and particularly, obviously, the the new Polestar range? And that's where an obvious one is in Australia, if you want to do that, you want to go supercar racing. So that's where that sort of that project and initiative uh, originated. And through that, got to um, – obviously, had a really good link with Gary Rogers, who you know, is still Gary, Barry, and actually the team are still good friends today, obviously, and involved in some of the things we're doing with ARG as well. But we're very close to the GRM crew. Um, got to meet you know, many of the the supercars executive team, uh, you know, James and John Casey, etc., and uh, and some of the team owners here and there. But outside of some of the key executives, uh, I really wasn't that embedded with a lot of the, the – I didn't have that much knowledge of the – the personalities within supercars at that stage but certainly uh, from the outside looking in yes
0: one of the discussion topics within the motorsport industry is always how effective is it for a manufacturer to be involved in motorsport and does it actually help them sell more cars and i remember again going back to the conversations that i had with david and the stillwell family that when volvo entered supercars certainly at the coalface at the dealerships, they felt that there was definitely increased interest from customers as a result of Volvo's involvement in supercars. How were things received at a boardroom level? I mean, at the, the top level where you were at that stage, could you see the benefits of the supercars involvement?
1: Yes, definitely. And that that's, you know, that's the reason why I wanted to do it. And I pushed, you know, I, I I did a business case with head office, which I think it had 10, 10 different loops to the business case process over a... Twelve-month period to get approval for that as part of a as part of a key growth plan for the brand in the country. Um, Volvo is a very conservative company, and half the people in the half the people I dealt with in Sweden really were excited about pushing the brand uh, harder and, and getting it very edgy in Australia, and particularly on the performance side. The other half uh, thought actually it was the wrong way to go because obviously being very conservative about safety, particularly in the environment, they did question how. How supercars, the supercar program would would uh, reflect on the brand and would it work? Um, but I can say that, you know, we put in place what I believe is a very good business case. Uh, we knew from an Australian perspective it certainly have an impact on the brand and therefore would trickle down to showroom inquiry and, and ultimately sales, which it did. And you know, we put in place a break even uh, sales volume increase to cover the cover the supercars program and the investment in it and. We, we broke through that broke even period three months after the commencement of racing. So, yeah, we were selling more cars than what we anticipated at that stage in the business case, which made it a very positive opportunity for us. And, and so that did, it did pay us back in, in not only brand consideration, which spiked, but also in the sales result that we saw, particularly for s sixty
0: so that was 2014 volvo remained in supercars until the end of the 2016 season but by that stage you had departed volvo and actually moved on to supercars so let's talk then about the next part of your journey which is where you actually start getting involved in the motorsport industry in supercars initially as the commercial director and then as the managing director for a couple of years as well what attracted you to leave volvo to join supercars
1: yeah, so I, I made the decision to leave Volvo um, quite well, midway through 2014, and I was, I'd sort of as we touched on in the prior discussion, I think I'd reached the pinnacle of the role I could have in Volvo Car Australia. I was MD, and I couldn't go any higher in Australia. Uh, I was offered some roles uh, back in Sweden, which at the time, I really wasn't too keen on doing, certainly from a I didn't really want to relocate my family to Sweden, but also uh, people in my position generally prior to that had gone out to other markets, you know, was a, there was a well-trodden path for MDs of Australia to go to you know, Japan or the US or into Europe um, but just prior to or when, during that period I became MD, they actually realised I want to try and get more people back into head office with market experience so rather than actually looking to get a posting around the world somewhere, they were trying to get Uh, Trying to entice us back to Sweden, which wasn't really uh, wasn't really that exciting for me. Um, So I made the decision. Yeah, I think was uh, was actually just after the Clipsal 500. Actually, in uh, in 2014, I made the decision to leave Volvo because I felt I could I'd done everything I could do there. And uh, throughout the end of the year, and literally was I think the Bathurst race was my last one of my last official events as MD. at Volvo and I happened to see James Warburton who you know was there and sort of came up to say farewell and he asked what I was doing uh, after I was, it, where I was going to after Volvo. So actually I've got nowhere to go to. I'm going to have a bit of a rest and then you know, look at other industries because so, I really wanted to take, uh, I was really hopeful I could become a senior executive and use my experience in another industry. And one of the industries I was really keen to get into was sport. So I mentioned that to James and he was he was quite surprised I didn't actually have anything lined up and said so, look, I come in and talk to him the following week and one thing led to another and next thing you know i obviously uh, I'm heading to Supercars as commercial director, which which was which was a great opportunity. It was it was very unexpected at the time. Um but yeah, James and I had a good chat and and I was really pleased oh. to for him to offer me a role. It was it was very great. It was very good.
0: How was your time within Supercars? And were there any particular memories from that period of time that you were working within the Supercars organisation?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, Supercars is a great business. And I think uh, too many people look at it through you know very generalised lens saying that it's just literally it's, – it's a – it's a sport with just cars running around the track, but supercars is a fantastic event and media business. And that's really what it's about. You know, the, the racing's part of it. And most of the business is actually delivering the content of the racing, making sure it works, but also you're running these major events. You're, you're, you're obviously, uh, you're producing a fantastic broadcast, which is which is global quality, you know, as, as is evidenced by the people who have gone through supercars on the bigger and better things elsewhere in, in motorsport media landscape. And, but it's challenging. You've got a lot to to really get the results out of that business. You've got to balance so many different revenue streams and also cost uh, cost items. So as a business model, it's, it's really fascinating, and I really enjoyed uh, running it as a business. You know, and for me, even though I am a motorsport fan in a role like that, I was very conscious not to be a motorsport fan. I was always trying to detach myself and run it as a as a business, and view view things as a business, not just as a fan. Um, and we did some, we achieved some amazing results there with a really, really good group of people. I mean, everyone at Supercars is very passionate about what they do. They're very qualified. Um, sometimes they get a bad rap from certain quarters, but you, you can't, you can't question anyone's enthusiasm and hard work to get the job done in Supercars. And you know, during that phase, we did some, we achieved some good profit numbers. We obviously, the, the, James negotiated the, the Fox Sports uh, deal at that stage, and obviously the audience was growing through that substantially. And through that, we're able to increase revenue through the commercial partners, uh, increase the, the scope of the broadcast and, the, and you know, various initiatives in the broadcasts. And you can see were developed through that period. So it was a really exciting time. And I, again, I'll always look fondly back on my time at Supercars, you know, given what we achieved and the group of people that worked there.
0: Certainly a complex business and uh, no doubt a lot of what you would have learned while you're in that role is serving you well. In your current role with ARG. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, though, during your time at Supercars is that you were heavily involved in putting the Super Utes concepts together. Now, Super Utes is something that I was obviously involved in as the, the series commentator for the, the couple of years that it was running. Unfortunately, it received, particularly on social media, quite a lot of backlash from fans. But I think one of the things that a lot of people overlook is that it also was quite successful in attracting commercial and corporate support, both the series as a whole and individual drivers and teams. And, and one of the tragedies of the Super Utes is that some of the technology that was developed, like you had Motech, obviously, as an ECU provider developing plug and play diesel technology, a lot of those benefits are not really appreciated or acknowledged by the, the wider public which is a bit of a shame why do you think that super ultimately didn't succeed and when you look back at that category is there anything that you would have done differently in hindsight
1: yeah it's a really good question and yeah the super Utes category i think was was actually a very good category for the reasons you say i think that it was a little bit like supercars are going through now where quite frankly the, the the cars are no longer really market relevant you know the whereas super utes was an opportunity for us we saw it as a case of one bringing a one of the categories that we are involved with up to date you know transitioning because by that stage the falcon ute had finished the whole new was finished you know we needed to move on it was an exciting category well supported but we needed to move on and we saw the opportunity to make it more market relevant by going to utilizing the diesel utes which is the number one performing segment in the entire automotive market in australia so it's it's supremely market related uh as you touched on it was very commercially successful you know we were we were talking to manufacturers we hadn't spoken to before we were talking to sponsors that we hadn't spoken to before who were very excited about it and committed to it so as a commercial enterprise that category was very successful the the, if i look back on it now what would i change i think we we were actually under pressure to deliver it quicker than what we had hoped there was some some delays in the program which you know a 50-50 call you probably would have delayed it to the following year to put a bit more effort into some of the aspects of the, the development side of it and it was a bit rushed that was probably my my only regret with that is we sort of we pushed it too hard to get started we should have just really um, and we don't get started it wasn't it wasn't like we missed anything, but it was a little bit underdone from a timing perspective, certainly on the way the, uh, the way the utes were developed and performed with uh, certainly some more work could have been done on that before we launched. So that's one regret. And I think, uh, yeah, other than the fact that I think the biggest issue they had was the diesel engines. You know, everyone was, everyone was throwing darts at those things because they had diesel engines. But people forget that the super utes were actually quicker around the circuit in their first year than the V8 utes were in their first year. So the V8 Utes mm. by the end had been developed, had been refined. They were putting in some good lap times, and we knew that the Super Utes would actually get to that point too. Were, you know, there was a there was a very strong development path for that category um, to keep pushing the performance with through tyres and chassis and also engine engine adjustments along the way, which would have seen them, you know, easily have lap times comparable, if not better, than the the prior V8 Utes. But I think through there was a lot of social media about the diesels, you know, not being noisy there were trucks like you know they, they they didn't appeal i think to some hardcore fans and they made their they made their opinions very loud and clear which i think ultimately did reflect on on some people's support for that category and i think that um the one surprise i have in the regret, i think um certainly that category should have survived but it needed to be driven very hard and i think you know once I left, and once uh, James Waldron left, I think some, I'd, I'd argue that maybe the eyes were taken off it a bit too much. and was seen too much as a, as a problem child um, rather than developing it, building it, and, and making sure it succeeded. It was more too became too hard and put in the too high basket, and unfortunately, it, it uh, it's uh, you know, led to its largely to its demise at the moment, which is unfortunate because it was a, you know, it, it was at the time very commercially successful, and I have no doubt if it hadn't been really driven harder over the next couple of years it would have been a successful motorsport category outright from a from a performance and entertainment point of view
0: it'll be interesting to see what happens because there has obviously been talk about them potentially moving to control v8 motors in the existing chassis Uh, so whether or not that path proves to be more successful i suppose we'll, we'll have to wait and see that leads us though to uh to where you are today so you finished up at supercars at the end of 2017 and you are now CEO of the Australian Racing Group, which is a position that you've held since May 2018. What attracted you to the ARG role? Yeah,
1: you know, ARG, again, came up through an opportunity with some some people I've met through the Volvo Supercar Program and, obviously, in time, through the time of V8, so obviously, namely um uh, uh, Mellon and Brian Boyd. And uh, when I left Supercars... Um, uh, the, the s5000 or super 5000 program which is uh, the, the if you like the prototype category that was that supercars had um, that was actually supported quite heavily by by um, Brian and John and when I left supercars they actually contacted me and said look would, would I be keen to work with them on a basis of maybe trying to help them bring that to life and, and take control of that category which now has become s5000. And that, which saw the merger of obviously the prototype uh, that Oscar Fiorentino did, and obviously and the Chris Landon's uh, Formula Thunder, so a combination of those, and that started the discussion. And literally, they saw what, what are, what are some of the ways forward here? What, are, what opportunities are there? And that's where you know, literally ARG became a start off startup off, off the back of that, where I thought there was actually scope to uh, not only sort of develop S5000, but there were other categories out there that could basically formed together to create a, a, a successful sort of category management business, which, as we know, supercars are really good at running the supercars category and some of the supports, particularly being on that side of the fence. I did know that corralling good quality support categories for multiple events throughout the year is sometimes a bit, a bit of hard work. And the intention was that ARG could be a supplier of multiple categories to promoters, namely supercars, but others. So we thought there'd be a good business model and actually, uh, not only developing categories, but certainly developing and maybe acquiring categories, which through economies of scale could be a well set up and well managed, uh, well managed business.
0: I think there's sometimes a bit of misconception among fans or people in the industry of how the management of ARG is actually structured. And I think sometimes there's a perception that you've got Brian Boyd and John McMillan in the background as investors who are spending a lot of money on making the thing work. So can you just give us a bit of an explanation about how the management of ARG is actually structured?
1: Yeah, look, I think... John and Brian, uh, with initial stakeholders, there are more stakeholders and shareholders involved in RG now, and I'm probably not at liberty, liberty to announce some of them, but uh, it's, become a, it's become a small business idea now into actually, you know, I'm very proud to say a, a serious motorsport business in the country, given the fact that if I'd sat back in, in 2018 and thought, okay, where would I see RG being two years later? It wouldn't be where we currently are with the number of categories we've been able to acquire or develop. And certainly the events, you know, none of the two Bathurst events have been up to secure as well. So we've moved very fast. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got a great team of people. And as we've been growing and developing, so too obviously has this, the scope of the business and, and the shareholding of the business. So there are multiple shareholders involved in, in ARG. And it's it's they're set up uh, through a company structure. Obviously, we have a board that that's uh, representative of those shareholders, and I report to the board as CEO.
0: As you mentioned, it's been a portfolio of categories and events that's been built up. The most prominent of those you has been TCR. And last year in the first season, there was a lot of work done to encourage high-quality drivers and teams into the series, and we saw that that was reflected in some really good fields and uh, some very entertaining racing. From your perspective, how do you rate the inaugural season for TCR? Yeah,
1: look, I think it was a really good start. You know, I think... Uh, again, to be quite frank, better than I expected. I thought that we'd we um, we'd not struggle to get the numbers, but I thought that you know we'd I was expecting we'd get sort of early to mid-teens to kick off. We're able to push that a bit harder. You know, and we did we took different measures and initiatives to do that. But to being able to start with I think we started with 17 at that stage, and being represented at that point in time by eight different brands, that was really impressive. And that's where. Uh, those sort of numbers are what we would hope to achieve and I was really pleased that we did get that did get that start we wanted. But the best part for us and and credit to everyone involved was the feedback we got through Marcello Lotti at WSE who obviously is the uh, he uh, he runs TCR globally and he told us he said look you know, based on the information from you know what he saw, the information from his people and the feedback he was getting from the manufacturer stakeholders involved in TCR globally that Australia was regarded as being the best start of a national national TCR series he'd ever seen. So that was hearing that from, from Marcello and obviously knowing that it was getting feedback from manufacturers, that was a real feather in everyone's cap. And I think that was probably, that was unexpected. And that was, that was very nice to hear. And, and again, I think it was a reward for everybody for putting in the hard work to get it off the ground.
0: Definitely good to get a thumbs up from the international crew, that's for sure. But TCR, while it's... Um probably, the, like I said, the most prominent category in the ARG portfolio. You've also now got S5000, Touring Car Masters, the Trans Am series, the two Bathurst events, the Six Hour and the Bathurst International, and the Super 3 series, which is now obviously merged with the Super 2 series at Supercars events as well. Coming into 2020, it was looking like this was going to be a really fantastic year for ARG, Uh, Unfortunately something called COVID-19 has happened. How disruptive has it been and how frustrating has it been for you and the rest of the crew at ARG um, for this to come along at the beginning of what was looking to be such a great season?
1: Yeah, look, I think that the COVID crisis is a terrible thing that's happened around the world Um, from a health and and livelihood perspective, but certainly from a motorsport perspective, uh, not belittling its effect elsewhere, but certainly it's been very frustrating for us that we were building some really strong momentum heading into 2020. Um, Obviously, the events we were entering into, the categories we'd secured, the entrant numbers we had, plus obviously our new broadcast partnership with Seven, yeah, you know, we were we were expecting it to be. We were expecting it to come out of the blocks really, really big in 2020, and I think we still will when the time's right and when we can. But we were really looking forward to having that momentum continuing fairly early in the year, off the back of a, a good finish to 20 sort of 2019, coming into 2020, starting with a bang, and then pushing through really heavily into 2021. And unfortunately, that's been delayed, uh, and that's immensely frustrating. So we've still got a great group of entrants in all our categories unfortunately we had to postpone or, or push out the the uh, Easter six-hour race about the six-hour race we're now doing that in conjunction with the Bathurst international um, and we haven't we haven't been able to show uh, any of our categories on channel 7 yet so all those things they're all still very positive initiatives very positive opportunities and We'll, we'll provide great momentum for our and you know, all our categories, but it's just been frustrating that we've had to hit the pause button and, and we haven't been able to really start yet. So we are looking forward to getting going as quick as we can in 2020.
0: One of the things that I wanted to get your thoughts on, and we discussed this with Craig Denyer on the podcast a few episodes ago as well, the Australian motorsport landscape has become quite complex and you've got an increasing number of categories that are competing in many cases over a limited pool of competitors and sponsors with the COVID-19 crisis and the economic downturn that we're potentially going to be facing, which which could be quite severe, the overall pool of money to spend on motorsport, there's a good chance that it's going to be reduced, especially when you think that motorsport is discretionary income for for a lot of competitors. Um, Many of those competitors are the people who would be racing in your categories as well. Uh, how do you see the ARG suite of categories placed to deal with the economic downturn and to be able to continue to attract healthy fields?
1: Yeah, look, I'm, you're exactly right. I think the motorsport landscape is, is in Australia is certainly overpopulated with categories. And I think it always has been, to be quite frank. And there was, certainly through Motorsport Australia, there were some rationalisation moves, which uh, some big ones done a couple of years ago, but obviously it is the I know it is an ongoing topic of how you can actually rationalise the categories to make sure the investment, rather than investment gets too spread too wide, you try and condense it into putting into really strong good categories and also to develop pathways. But when it comes to ARG, we're very confident on the categories we have going forward. You know, I think we've got we've got something for everybody, quite quite realistically, both from a fan point of view and a competitor point of view. We've got majority of our categories either currently have or We're working to have a regional and potentially international pathway for for drivers, which I think is a key component. And then you look at costs you know, we've got uh, you've got TCR, which you know is, is around a good season and a good team is roughly about sort of high 200 to 300, I'd say the 300,000 to run, uh, or even probably about 320, 350 now. If you really do it, if you threw everything at it, uh, S5000 is about 250,000 a season to run. Uh, TCM, depending on the car, is, you know, 150000 to 170000 a run. Transams a little bit less. And V8 Touring Cars, a little bit less than that. So we have these categories which, you know, we're not talking, when you compare them to Carrera Cup or Super 2 or Super Cars, you know, our categories are very cost-effective to participate in. And they're cost-effective. They're, you know, we want to maintain they've got good quality categories to run so that, you know, there will be proper performance in there. And TCR is a good example. The, the ability to actually have drivers uh, perform in those categories and then progress elsewhere is, is strong. And also the, the, the exposure we're able to give the categories and the, and the participants through the broadcast. So, yeah, you know, our media is very strong. So when you take into account the, the media platform, we're able to have the quality of the categories we actually have and the cost of those categories, categories to compete. We believe they're very favourable, and actually, it provides us with a distinct advantage in the new, the new post-COVID motorsport landscape, whatever that, uh, whatever that will be.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's look ahead to the future. Then, one of the persistent rumours that often floats around within the industry is that ARG would potentially be interested in acquiring supercars. Uh, this is a bit of a bombshell question for you, but can you confirm or deny that rumour?
1: Oh, I think all I can say on that one is that. Uh, I'm on record. I think from from last year saying that ARG would always continue to look for the right opportunities in motorsport, and if supercars was an opportunity, then we'd certainly look at it, as as we would any other category or series that might be uh, might be available at any given time.
0: Playing that one with a very straight <laughs> bat. Slightly less controversial question is um, the esports scene. So obviously we've seen the rise of online sim racing has accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic and it's something that we've seen ARG has been involved in with the ARG Esports Cup and more recently the TCR Sim Racing Series which is running currently. Do you see ARG increasing involvement in the online and esports component of motorsport?
1: Yeah, i definitely like to think so. You can, you can see eSports in every sport sporting code now has a place, uh, you know, quite frankly, and it is going to be the future as far as actually engaging a wider group of fans to a 20-given sport. So we've always had an idea, an eye on eSports and to be how, how it would, um, you know, from my time in supercars, obviously we were, we were very conscious of eSports and looking to develop that. And certainly the same at ARG, we think there's a strong future there. And the COVID scenario is actually probably fast forwarded a lot of that uh, a lot of that approach to to esports and sim racing. So out of necessity we've had to bring forward a lot of those plans. And if you look at our ARG esports series, we had, you know, a credit to, to Grant Rowley, Ben McMillan and Liam Kirkpatrick, we put that together very quickly and it was a way to actually keep our, our competitors engaged while also providing some good content for fans. And obviously now uh, the TCR Global Sim Racing Program has been launched. It wasn't available to us earlier than now. Obviously, we probably would have we would have brought it forward, but uh, that's why we went our own way with the ARG Sports, and now that is comp- completed, and the TCR Sim Series is available. We've taken that on board in, in partnership with WSC to race uh, the Australian Series, and again, that's it's been well received. And, and obviously, your involvement there, obviously through the commentary, you've seen it firsthand. But it's. It's something which, you'll, at this stage, it won't take over, obviously, the, the, the natural and real action on track. But as, as an adjunct to what we do and as a, as a great initiative to widen the fan base for, for our categories and certainly motorsport in general, esports is, is definitely a major component of that going forward and will be, if not more so, as, as the future progresses.
0: So if we look big picture then and you get your crystal ball out, What's your vision and strategic direction? Where would you like to see ARG in say three or five years time?
1: Yeah, crystal ball's always go. good one. Look, yeah, you know, personally, I think it is, you know, without without talking to, to other people involved in ARG, there are certain there is a collective vision on where we'd like to go and sort of so people have their opinions. I think where I'd like to see ARG is is really come out and I think we've demonstrate ourselves that we're actually and now a um, you know, an important player on the Australian motorsport landscape, which is which is what we wanted to achieve. I see us going forward where we will have uh, the strong events. We'll make the the two Bathurst events we have. We really want to build on those and make them you know, world class events, uh, even more than what they they already are. The category wise, I don't think will necessarily be. Uh, acquiring or adding new you know, new categories in, in great numbers over the short period of time, or certainly in the next couple of years. But if opportunities come up, then obviously we'll assess them. But I really think you'll see ARG have, be a strategic partner with WSC, both from an Australia point of view, obviously our, our links with New Zealand, and also our discussions with other TCR markets on regional opportunities. So we, uh, and same with, with S5000, it would be, we really want to, Get that category cemented, and that was probably the the biggest impact of twenty twenty is is we felt by S five thousand because we had the two races last year, which sort of whet the appetite for what the series could be. We really need to get those cars on track and show people, and they they will be a surprise packet for everybody, and, and certainly a great a great category. And we are talking, and and we have uh, a lot of interest from foreign drivers who are looking at S five thousand potentially as a as a stepping stone to. You know, it's a good, it's a we're, a we're a motorsport nation, it's a good market to race in. They see s 1000 being maybe an opportunity to come into Australia, race, do well on a championship, and then springboard into something else, but either into Europe or America. And Trans Am, we're developing you know, Trans Am is, is a great category. Uh, we obviously have links, strong links with America, we're working closer with New Zealand, and you know, those sort of tie in well to where I see ARG being uh, a strong domestic organ domestic motorsport organisation with maybe a regional, international focus on our categories and events. And you know, I think supercars are very much domestic Australian focus. They do a really good job at that. Um, we probably see ourselves as being the sort of more international and regional component of motorsport in, in this country. I think that's probably our, our, our point of difference, which will probably be magnified as we progress over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, and if you can create career opportunities for young drivers who want to push for some overseas chances, then that's definitely a space in the market that you can occupy.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, we've already seen Will. I mean, Will Brown is a fantastic talent, as we all know. He's won pretty much every category he's participated in. He's our inaugural TCR Australia champion, and he's now been selected on the Hyundai Junior Programme. And I mean, I'd love to see Will be be Australia's first competitor in in the World Touring Car or World TCR. Cup, you know, I think that's certainly achievable and that, that would cement it'd be a great move, I think, for his career. Uh, great profile for for obviously TCR Australia, but also it demonstrates the pathway that's on offer for those categories for that category for for Australian drivers.
0: I can just imagine Will Brown tearing it up over there against all of the European competitors. They would not know what hit them, I can tell you.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Alright, well we're just about done here on the podcast, but here on Checkered Flag Chat we always finish up with a segment called Checkered Flag Choices. It's a bit of fun, it's a bit like speed dating, and the way that it works is that I ask you five questions and you answer them. So let's do it. Question number one, what is your favourite holiday destination?
1: Uh, Queenstown, New Zealand.
0: You a bit of a skiing fan or does something else attract you to Queenstown?
1: I love, I love the area. Like it, to me, it's, 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 uh, it's one of the most peaceful and beautiful places on earth and it's got a bit of everything. So, yes, you, go, you can go skiing there in winter and have well, I love skiing, so it's great, but also summer over there is just equally beautiful. It's, I find it just a very relaxing place to, place to stay.
0: Question number two, who are three people you would invite to dinner? <laughs> uh,
1: interesting one. Uh, Jackie Stewart. I'd love, love to uh, catch up with him. Say so maybe uh, Scott Morrison just to, I'd love to tap into the life of a Prime Minister, not, not that I'm not saying i am not got an allegiance to him, but I think just obviously understanding his current challenges, I think it'd be, be great. And uh, probably throw someone in, a, a movie star or someone from, uh, from Hollywood to get an understanding of the entertainment industry, or maybe another sports star, probably. Uh, actually, my third would be Russell Wilson, quarterback for the Seahawks. So I think I'm a Seahawks fan, but also I like what he's doing in personal investment in sports, so it'd be great to to pick his brain
0: on some of that sort of stuff. Yeah, nice. Question number three, what's your dream car? Uh,
1: dream car for me is a. Uh, always been a Porsche fan, so uh, for me, a, a GT3 RS or something like that is is the dream
0: car for me. Beautiful. Question number four, what's the best advice you've ever been given? And this could apply to motorsport or business or any other aspect of your life.
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, the best advice for me that I've been given is is uh, never give up. You
0: know, if
1: you believe in something, never give up on it, and uh, be pre- be prepared to take the risk where other people don't. So I think uh, some successful people I've met in my lifetime, they you meet them, and when you get to know them, they're, they're actually normal people, and you, you you talk to them about what the difference is between. Them and somebody else being successful, and said I was the guy that I was the guy or girl who actually made the move. You know, I took the risk whereas others who are more qualified than me didn't take the risk. And I think that's a bit of bit of a risk, but certainly risk and the ability to never give up are keys to success.
0: And last question: Who is the racing driver that you respect the most?
1: Oh, good question. I think um, there's probably two. Uh, uh, I think, um, well, I should say, for me, uh, Ed and Senna. I think. Uh, Never met him, but obviously watched him from afar as as a younger person and just his absolute focus on winning. And he's, uh, was just so impressive. And certainly from a local perspective, you know, the two that come to mind is like Scott McLaughlin, having sort of dealt with him in the Volvo program and see how he progressed, how he's progressed. Uh, He's a fantastic young man, an amazing talent. And I see much of the same in Will Brown coming up. You know, I think, uh, you know, we're we're blessed with some really good talent in this country and it's great to see them sort of start to succeed and, and show themselves.
0: Well done. You have successfully completed the Checkered Flag Choices segment. Well, Matt, that completes the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. You've given us some really, really valuable insights into what go on behind the scenes, not just in the motorsport industry, but in the wider automotive industry. So really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me on the podcast.
1: Excellent. Thanks very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you.
0: Since its suite of categories burst onto the scene last year, there's no question ARG is making everyone in Australian motorsport sit up and take notice. And with someone of Matt's management calibre steering the ship, it looks like ARG will continue to shake up the establishment. So, it will be fascinating to see what the future holds. I'm Locky Mansell. Thanks for listening.